Welcome to episode 126 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we have the second part of our interview with Rob McEwen, chairman and chief owner of McEwen Mining. He's interviewed by the Northern Miner publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, on the sidelines of the Silver and Gold Summit in San Francisco a few weeks ago. And then we have our sponsored segment here. This is, uh, we call it the Sponsor Spotlight, and these are the sponsors, uh, the major sponsors of our Progressive Mind Forum in Toronto in October. So uh, this episode, we have Roy Slack. He's the president at Cementation Canada, and he's also the incoming president of the Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy, and Petroleum, which you'll also speak to. The sponsor of this podcast is the Yukon Mining Alliance. You can check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca. Their Twitter feed is at at investyukon, all one word. A little bit of news out of the Yukon here. We have Aluxco Resource. They came out with their third quarter results. They uh, lost $1.5 million in the third quarter, and they ended it with $14.1 million in cash. They note that during the quarter, they continued to advance the underground ramping system at the Flame and Moth deposit, and that by October 31st, the company had completed the targeted Flame and Moth underground development program for 2018, with 452 meters driven in total, most of that a linear decline advance, and then some supporting infrastructure. An interesting little twist on the Alexco story is they also have their Alexco environmental group, and during the quarter they realized revenue of $4.7 million. Of that, the gross profit was $1.8 million for 38% profit margins. We have some nice drill results here from White Gold Corp. They're drilling their J.P. Ross property in the Yukon. Hole 6 returned 3.21 grams gold per ton over 82 meters, including 103.9 grams gold and 400 grams silver over 1.5 meters from surface. Another hole returned 14 grams gold over 6 meters from surface. So let's proceed with our sponsor spotlight with Roy Slack, and he's interviewed by Alicia Hyatt. She's the Canadian Mining Journal Editor-in-Chief. And then we'll have a little musical interlude and then come right back with the Rob McEwen interview. My name is Roy Slack, and I'm president of Cementation. We're a mining contractor. We usually explain to people in simplest terms, we build mines. What is your company doing in terms of implementing innovation in the mining industry? We're working with innovation on, on a number of fronts. So from a technical perspective, things like injection hoisting, which was a winner at the Disrupt Mining event in 2017, we continue to develop that. Uh, the borehole hoisting model, which we installed at Young Davidson, and it's worked quite well. These are major technical innovations. The innovations that we work on day to day, a lot of them have to do with safety. So if we can remove a worker, a miner from the hazard through remote operation, through a change in process, that's an innovation that we're really interested in. Can you tell me a little bit about um, changes that you've seen in the industry, um, in the industry's openness towards innovation? The industry's always been innovating, but it's a difficult industry to implement new ideas. And there's a number of reasons for that. People call it a conservative industry, but, but the reality is there's major risks associated with 
trying new things. And those risks are both in terms of dollars and time, especially on, on projects. Now, after saying that, it's very encouraging to see that the present mood in the industry, there's a real openness to innovation. And the major mining companies are trying a lot of different things, some on a small scale, some on a larger scale. But the openness, I think, is going to help generate new ideas and uh, really help innovators get their ideas into the industry. And what um, new innovations are, are you working on at Cementation now? I mentioned some technical innovations, but, but I, I do want to make a point that we often think of innovations as technical in nature. So engineers develop them, but the reality is contract formats, different uh, productivity models, those are innovative as well. So we really encourage those, and we've actually got an ideas team within cementation that's not developing ideas, but they're helping to develop a culture of creativity. So we're trying to foster that within the company. The, the other thing we're trying to do is share ideas. Often on projects, someone will innovate and do something that's good, and other projects don't hear about it. So you can call it best practices or lessons learned, but some model to capture those ideas and to have other projects and other companies use them. The sharing or the collaborative nature is challenging in contracting. It's challenging in mining in general. Certainly in safety, there's a real collaborative spirit in the Ontario Mine Contractors Safety Association. Different safety groups openly share their innovations. So that, that's very encouraging as well. You mentioned uh, innovation in contracts. In the last upcycle in the mining industry, there were a lot of projects that went over budget. Uh, what kind of innovations are you thinking about doing that could help reduce that in the future? We've been a firm believer in a design-build model, and that's early contractor involvement, where the contractor, so cementation gets involved early, establishes the budgets during feasibility phase. So we have current numbers. We can put together very detailed estimates, and our estimates are usually quite accurate. So having a contractor that's going to eventually do the work involved early in the project really helps to nail down a proper budget and schedule. The the other element we look at, we've done work as design build and as an EPC, so an engineer procure and construct contractor. We're tending more to a model we like to call EPD, which is engineer procure and deliver. Mm -hmm. What that's all about is the fundamental elements of EPC but with performance management integrated into all phases, so right from feasibility right through to execution of the project and then commissioning. And these are things that are going to maintain a focus, certainly on the schedule and the budget. And we've had good success in working with with these type of models. Was there anything else that you wanted to discuss today? Uh, Well, well, two things. I'll, I'll mention injection hoisting, which I mentioned at the start, a very unique system for bringing ore to surface by pumping rather than hoisting or trucking. And it's been developed. It'll apply in certain situations. And right now we're in the final stages of engineering and looking at uh, a funding model to build a prototype. So that's an exciting innovation for us that we're developing. The other thing I'll mention in closing, in addition to my role as president at Cementation, I'm the incoming president of the CIM. I'm very passionate about the mining industry in Canada, and the CIM is a, is a great 
vehicle for encouraging innovation, for developing interest in our industry and the public, and uh, I'm very happy to uh, be part of it. Thanks so much for joining us, Roy. Well, thank you for having me. And I think we're going to see a generation, the baby boom, is picking up. It's starting to leave. Um, And they're not encouraging them to stay. But the problem with baby boom is there's a lot of money in there, but they're coming into the stage of their life where they want income, not capital gains. So you have that money coming out of the market. And maybe the crypto and the cannabis movement are younger investors that see opportunity where the others thought, oh, well, that was illegal once and that I don't understand. There's nothing, there's air behind it. How can it be? Right. So there's a vacuum being created and then there's this younger generation that's very attuned to the the digital economy Mm -hmm. and digital media and that's having some sort of impact. In that context, is there hope for our industry in attracting those kinds of investors? You've spoken eloquently on how to think outside of the box and how to even make our actual mine operations more attractive and yes. more appealing. How, what's the sort of thing that we need to do to attract that new money? We need more stories of the gains. We need a, some brave writers and magazine editors to start talking about what's happening in this sector to attract money into it. And then dealing with the diversity of skills that are now in a mining industry. We may see remote operations more and more. That's not good for northern communities or remote communities, but can we get a lot of the skills we need in the communities where people want to live? Well, this is a big factor, right? Someone coming out of their MBA in Toronto or in London, Ontario, doesn't want to go to Nunavut. This is, that's just a fact, right? It's, a, it's very those jobs are there apparently. People don't want to go and, and take them. So you think technology solves that? You can mm-hmm. do it remotely. You know, maybe by better educating our population, <laughs> we're doing away with the labor that we need because we're creating expectations. Right. Um, or, but you could work anywhere in the world, and yeah, that, and that's, that's what I think is really side. sort of exciting. Um, like RTZ's mine in the future, everybody was in Perth except the maintenance people. They'd fly in to fix the machines. Um, so what other companies, what other leaders, next generation of leaders, is there anyone that has caught your eye that you think, okay, this person reminds me of a younger Rob McEwen or... I thought Paul Hewitt of Klondike. Yeah. Why, what so? What traits does he embody? Energy, uh, operational skills, an understanding of the market. 
Those are pretty strong ones. Yeah. Um, I have to say I haven't spent a whole lot of time going around looking. Yes. And I really should, but... Um, well, that's more just if someone kind of jumped off the page. <laughs> Ian Ball, I thought, of uh, Abitibi Royalties. Yeah. Well, you mentored him. He's, he's a smart guy. I don't know how I ran out of juice. I was just wondering about time. Let's wrap it up. I do want to get your, only if you want to, and anything can be um, off the record to say so. But I was just, and it's a little bit past. Oh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm you okay. okay? It's a little bit past the time now, but I did want to get your, on the passing of Peter Monk, and out of being two strong gold mining people in the city of Toronto, I'm sure you came across Peter at times. What were your thoughts, Jim? I was sad. Yeah, I mean, Peter, I got to know well. Um, he was, I held him out as a, one of the model, him and Seymour Schulich. They, Peter, I thought, did something the mining industry hadn't done before, and that was you drill off a deposit, you think it's big enough, you put a mine plan on, you develop it, and then somewhere near the end of its life, you start looking again mm -hmm. for resources. Whereas he got one mine plan, and then the next year he had, a, he kept exploring, and he got a bigger one and a bigger one. I remember his presentations, he had a, 3D model and said, well, that was our pit. It was going to be 100,000 ounces. And this year, it's now, or 200, 300. I mean, he moved it all the way up to a million ounces. He just didn't stop, whereas most mining companies stopped when they got to an economic threshold. Well, look what you did with Red Lake, very similar. Did you feel that your kindred spirits? I mean, was he, must, he was obviously very aware of what you were doing at the same time. He, um, no, I just saw the model and I said, Everybody else is following the leader, and the leader, you don't get there very quickly. Right. Peter broke it. And he, he went a step further, um, basically non-recourse financing on most of his projects, so he was never threatening his business. Um, and so, I'm, in charitable giving, he and Seymour were... Seymour changed the model, too. He with Pierre Lassonde came up with a royalty model yeah. and a few number of employees and huge revenue per employee. Yeah, they've done all right with that. And, and it was Peter Monk that really made Franco because Peter had this just incredible appetite to build the biggest gold miner in the world and he just kept expanding and they had a royalty there and it just piggybacked. The famous $2 million royalty that Pierre found in, a, in an ad in a local newspaper down in Nevada, right? Yeah. And those are the stories that built the lore and that get us, get people excited. Yes. Right? And yes. That we've had a bit of a dearth of. Um, I think perhaps the generosity of the mining industry, it, it's given a lot back. I mean, you go up University Avenue, what Monk give? He's, he's at about 130 million. And, uh, You're no slouch. Pierre is no slouch. Seymour, you four. I think of the four biggest of the bigs. Pretty impressive. Yeah, for Torontonians and Canadians, absolutely. So they, but it, you know, it's there's the riches of Mother Earth, and and you, it's been shared. Yeah. But how, and to your earlier point, how much do people know? You know, so we did. Um, Calvin came to London last year again to we did a dinner in honor of yes. Peter Monk, and he told the story. I think you'll like this if you don't know, if you haven't already heard it, where Peter was walking in the underground in the pathway system under the TD Bank towers and all that, and uh, he needed a poppy. He needed to have a poppy on him, so he just saw a gentleman he didn't know, a stranger, said, "Would you?" Have, he never carried cash apparently. Would you have, be able to lend me ten dollars so I can buy the poppy or whatever? Two dollars. The guy only had a ten. It ended up being ten dollars. 
So the guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And Peter gave him his card and he said, just reach out to me and I will pay you. I will give you your $10 back. So the guy looks at his card and he goes, oh, that's so funny. You'll never believe it. I was driving up University Avenue and the, on the Toronto General Hospital, the donator's got the same name as you. Did you know this? <laughs> right? And he was like, oh, no, I wasn't aware. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, this is the, there's still that unawareness of what yeah. the gold mining industry has done and how it's given back and how it's created this incredible city that we live in this incredible country that we all live in so hopefully that's something that begins to change a little bit you're certainly doing your part and then some yeah well it, it's there's there's needs out there and they're not being addressed and if you can help move it forward then it's uh, it's good use of funds is that would you say at this point in your life is that one of the greatest thrills that you get what do you get more of a thrill from? Philanthropic giving or building a new mine? There's equal weight. Equal weight. I, I think it's, you know, if you were to have to look at your tombstone, what would it say on it? Mm -hmm. Strive to build. That's a great question to ask. Strive to build. Very good. That's kind of all encompassing. And it, it's just, I think there's, for some reason, I'm not sure what, I've had a good run and there's more than one need. So where could you put it to have a big benefit? And I, I've seen, I remember um, the hospital in Red Lake, the Margaret Koshner Hospital, they'd always ask me to come over, take a look at it, they had some fundraising. And I remember going in there and I said, oh, okay, I got some time, show me around. And they said, well, we're, we're renovating our uh, emergency wing and our obstetrics area and then we've got a seniors area and we have this these are all the requirements and the, I went you know that emergency wing you only have one door and, and it gets down to minus 40 for one or two months of the year doesn't the cold air come straight in to your emergency area and just around the corners obstetrics you're not gonna have many babies here in the winter I mean they're not gonna want to come out <laughs> And, and, and your entrance doesn't have a roof or garage doors on either end to keep the snow up. So that's true. We cut it out because we didn't have enough money. didn't think we could raise the money. I said, what about over there? I said, all right, tell me what it's going to cost you to build those modifications in the emergency room and have no debt and just complete your bill. And they said this. I said, all right, I'll give you that. And... Just show me plans that you've got this, yeah. and I'll, I'll give it to you. And I was surprised that some of them started crying. Really? And I just thought, I, I never anticipated anything like that. And I thought, here I'm signing, I'm going to sign my name on a piece of paper. And it's going to have a benefit for a lot of people. Um, and it brings out those types of emotions that looking at a bank account never does yeah that's a great point a powerful realization yeah it, it's just um, the force of good and, and you just think of areas where like the regenerative medicine and stem cell i think it's going it it looks like it's moving along nicely but my mother one of, one of my sisters died then my mother died four months later and i was sitting 
reflecting on this and I said I grew up in a family of six I had three younger sisters and right now only my youngest sister and I are alive Jesus and I'm next in line I'm meeting this guy Nick called mortality might be a she too but it's I didn't expect that but I'd spent a lot of time with my wife with my sister and my mother in the hospital and I just thought hmm we're trying to scale up, but we're doing it in a way that reminded me of Einstein's definition of insanity. And we're not, the, the baby boom is not going to get the same level of service that their parents got. And the generation behind the baby boom, the generations behind, will not get the same service if we try to just scale up what we have without changing the system and regenerative medicine held out the promise no guarantee but the promise of profound change to the delivery of healthcare. and we're starting to see that already mm. with your help at Toronto General right Toronto General has become a, an absolute leader in this yes and they're, they're doing some really interesting things with the heart right now where they're re when you have a heart attack that portion of the heart turns to scar tissue and it in no longer has the elasticity to act like a pump and we've been injecting first in uh, small primates and now pigs. Pigs have a heart about our size. Um, and they're regrowing muscle tissue with these stem cells, putting a billion cells into this dead area. So that, and human trials are about three years out, but that, assuming it's successful, and Bear Pharmaceutical has invested, chosen to invest. Uh, 225 million in regenerative medicine, and the first place they invested was our facility. Um, so that would replace, conceivably, replace pacemakers, artificial hearts, and transplants. That is exciting. That is incredible. So um, if they could do that, then the goal is how do we create Nobel Prize winners? What can we do to show that our work? in Canada, worthy of winning a Nobel Prize. You, feel, you can see that, like you can see that as being a realistic Well, goal. I think we should be aiming for that and we should be looking for, we gave, a, we have been giving out a prize of $100,000 US a year to innovative innovations in stem cell research. And it was going to, the first recipient was a Japanese researcher, Shinya Yamanaka, and he a year and a half later, won the Nobel Prize for the work that we gave him as a award. Right. And I thought that's really cool. Yeah, you, that, well, that gets you within kind of breathing distance, right? That makes it more real. So then that got me on thinking, well, why aren't we working? What, what is it that takes to become a Nobel Prize winner? What publications you have to be in? What type of research? What type of marketing? What type of awareness of you in a global context? Right. Of a researcher. All that comes into it, I would imagine. That. So, why aren't we working towards getting the very best? Why aren't we looking at our medical system and saying, we've got all this talent. University Avenue, we spend over a billion dollars in after-tax dollars in research. We spend very little in development. Um, but our cost is lower than world prices for big operations. Why don't we double the size of our hospitals and healthcare and 
charge world prices and use the delta to subsidize our health care. Is there something that has traction? Is this an idea that has any traction? Well, a double lung transplant will cost you four hundred, or your insurance company four hundred thousand dollars at the Mayo Clinic. A couple of years ago, the president of UHN, when we were in conversation about that, said, "Well, we could do it probably for a hundred. So there's a delta of three hundred. And I said, "Well, why don't we set up a little separate company, and we'll do some of this, and it'll fund research." Half the delta will go to research, and half of it goes. Why is over. UHN able to do it at such a lower cost? I guess whenever you have insurance companies involved, they jack up the price. Hmm. Interesting. Or well, not the insurance company jacking up the price, but the institution yes, that does the operation. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting that we have that opportunity. I didn't know that. We should. We should. But you know, we're all about containing our healthcare costs. We should also make everybody responsible. For their health. Well, that would be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, how do you do that? Should you give? What do you do for a person that's had a double lung transplant, got all this resources given to them, and then they start smoking again? They light up their cigarette when they get out. I mean, you take the lungs back. <laughs> <laughs> or, it might it might give a different kind of behavior if you did. Yeah. Or do you say, no, you're ineligible. For a lung transplant. I mean, there's some really big questions, ethical questions. That come uh, along with all this innovation in the actual health. If you're responsible for your own health, you have to make sure that you don't become obese. You have to have a certain amount of exercise. And all these health plans around the world, they're not all standardized. I mean, yeah. there's certain operations you get for free and other ones you've got to pay for. And, well, and to your earlier point about the, the money not being there the way it was for the baby boomers, these conversations are going to be more important to have all the time because the, the resources aren't going to be there no. for the, each generation coming along, for everybody to have this kind of health care if you're not even taking care of yourself. So how are we going to pay for that as a country? We have all these resources that are sitting in the ground. Shouldn't we be thinking there should be pipelines going east, west, north, south and getting that out in a, the best possible way? looking at mining and dealing with First Nations and trying to take the ambiguity out of that. Um, we should be just running to deal with this. That's things. a rational approach, Rob, and unfortunately, <laughs> rational, the emotional seems to be trumping the rational these days, mm -hmm. at least from my limited vantage point. Yes. It's, emotional there, point there, of views are not good point of views. There needs to be a balance between the natural and the economic ecosystem. And we're not. We've just gone over here. Yeah. Um, we've delayed, delayed, delayed. And maybe for good reason in some cases. But there has to be a way to find, I want to put it, to get people to understand that the resources we have, some are renewable, but the ones in the ground, they're used in everyone's life. And that, yes, there is a certain stock of it above ground, that can be recycled, but there's not enough to meet the demands. That's right. And we would be better served if we could meet those demands. We're letting more and more people in, um, so we're going to have to. We have a bigger base to support. Yeah. Well, that in Tim Cook's famous comments about wanting to have Apple as an aspirational goal, which means it'll never happen anyway. But even to say that we want everything to be recycled, that assumes a no-growth global economy. Mm. Right? Like mm. just mathematically, that only works if there's no new people coming in. 
Right. Recycling is only taking care of who's already existing, not new demand coming in. So that's kind of saying, sorry, India, sorry, Africa. <laughs> There'll be, if you raise up your economies and demand Apple computers, we won't be able to do it because we're only going to recycle what's already there. You wonder how many people who are, who are taking that stance are renovating their houses. That's right. <laughs> buying new cars. That's right. Um, That's right. It's double standards. Out of touch with reality. It's like in Toronto, you, you look at the cultural renaissance happened with the Opera House, the Art Gallery, the Museum, and a number of other buildings. I remember... Um, <laughs> getting a tour of the art gallery by the director and said, you know, you have a wall here that faces northwest. It's a huge wall. And you've just built this. And said, was there ever, ever any discussion of your energy usage here and how it might have changed? And he said, no. And they said, well, how much square footage do you have? Well, we're, we're over 500,000 square feet. And I said, look around the city. Where have we put glass fronts on buildings? And glass is not a good insulator. Yeah. Um, the people that oppose mining, natural resource exploitation, or extraction, call it. Where are those discussions coming? And they beautify the hospital. Are they conservatory? And that, and they just. Well, why aren't you thinking about that? What did he say? Did you have a good we said we never talked about it. I said, "Well, you're going to have energy costs go up. Your budget, you're going to be closing parts of this." <laughs> this was post the Frank Gehry renovation. We're yeah. talking, yeah. so things like that vital weren't even on they the weren't table. considered. Now, I was in a building we um, just supported. There's a Rob and Cheryl Graduate Studies building at Schulich School of Business now. Okay, great. And they the official openings. They had a review, a preview of it uh, last Sunday, but That's it exciting. is uh, it is almost net zero in terms of energy. It, it has radiant floor heat. It has pipes in the ceiling. There's so no. Did you make that a stipulation of the donation? No, it was part of it. It was just really green. Huh. And there's a there's a McEwen School of Architecture in Sudbury at Laurentian, which yeah. is all French, English, First Nations, green, sustainable innovative use of lumber, breaking models. Fantastic. So, but this building at Schulich is really interesting because it, it uses a thermal chimney, which is a concept that's been used in the Middle East a long time. So you draw air from outside and it goes up. It's got grass roofs, it's got solar panels. It, I'll have to get up there to see it. That it it's very impressive. It's a beautiful building. That could be another one for your gravestone. Breaking models. Mm. Strive to build a breaking model. That's a good one. But you've done that through your entire career. This has been great. Thank Tony, you. Yeah, that's plenty. Jump. I've taken too much of your time. No, no. Thank not you, Rob. That enjoyed was amazing. It. Enjoyed it. That does it for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for your support of the podcast. As always, you can like the podcast, share it, and sign up for it. As always, we want to thank our podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. 
And that's it for this week. Bye-bye.